Exodus 27.20 And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to sanctify him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So that's what the rest of the chapter will describe, those garments. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. They shall take the gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen artistically woven. And shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, so it shall be joined together. An intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship, woven of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen thread. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the remaining six names on the other stone according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the two names or with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and of fine linen thread, you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold, and you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate, and the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. And the two other rings of gold you shall make, put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod, they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod, 
using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. You shall put it on a blue cord, that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, You shall make turbans for them for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. You shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Let's pray. Father, we come in here and sing to your son. We profess our love to him. We declare how wonderful he is for his action as priest in saving us from our sins. Lord, help us to apply that love tonight such that we love to learn more about priesthood. We love to see the prehistory of the priesthood of Jesus. Open our hearts to understand your word. Give us stamina and concentration that we may hear from your word and see the glory of your priests and the beauty of your priests and above all the task of your priests to be holy and to make holy the gifts and offerings that they offer before you. Father, we thank you for your Son, our great High Priest. We pray that you would teach us to avail ourselves more and more of his ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that is a long chapter describing the clothes of the priest. Unless you went to fashion school... You probably don't read long descriptions of clothing very often. But here is one because the clothing of the priest is very important. 
as you can see, there are many, many points that can be made about this chapter. There's a lot here. We're going to try once again, as we have with the rest of the tabernacle, to focus on the obvious. What is it that this chapter most clearly conveys to us? What we'll see is that a priest is a man called by God to represent the people to God. The priest is fitted for the presence of God by the special robes of holiness which he wears. So the priest represents the people before God, and he is fitted for that office by being clothed in the special robes of holiness. Especially this golden plate that the priest wears on his forehead is kind of our biggest clue to the labyrinth, which is why some translations actually set out that part of the verse in all caps to make it clear that here's what's going on. The Lord did not label very many things in the tabernacle. We've all seen this. The child draws something and you look at the drawing and say, hmm. And then the child points out, here's a label. See, I told you what this is. Then you say, oh, that's what you were trying to draw. Right here when we come to the priesthood, the Lord actually puts a label smack on the forehead of Aaron to clue us in. What I'm trying to show you is holiness. Here is what holiness looks like. You want to see a man who's holy to the Lord? Well, I'll put a label on his forehead that says, this guy is holy to the Lord. So we'll see the holiness of the priest. We'll get to that at the end, but we'll start with the task of a priest. There's six things in this chapter that priests have to do. And then we'll talk about the calling of the priest, which is what the beginning of the chapter speaks of. And then we'll talk about six more observations or five observations about the clothing itself. The task of a priest, the calling of a priest, the robes of a priest. The task of a priest, the granddaddy of the tasks of the priest, is to offer sacrifice. This chapter does not discuss that, except incidentally. The manual for how the priest is to offer sacrifice is found in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. As God describes all of the sacrifices and how priests are supposed to offer them. But aside from that granddaddy of all tasks of offering sacrifice... We start with verses 20 and 21 of chapter 27 regarding the bringing of oil so that Aaron and his sons can keep the lamp burning all night long in the tabernacle. What is the first task of the priest? All right, we move from the yard of the tabernacle at the end of chapter 27 to these instructions for lighting the lamp. And that tells us something. It tells us that the first task of the priest is to light the lamp. What does that mean? Well, obviously, literally, they were supposed to go in and make sure that the lamp was burning every night. But spiritually speaking, or the meaning of that, is to say the light's on and somebody's home. The task of the priest is to keep God resident in the camp of Israel. God comes and moves into the tabernacle, the priest's job is to ensure that he stays. The priest maintains the light of God's presence. That's the job of the priesthood. Don't let God get offended or don't stop taking care of God such that 
he walks away. The priest is here full time making sure that God can dwell with his people. So again, Christ, our great high priest, he has a full-time job of ensuring the presence of God among us, right? That's literally who he is as the God-man. He is the one who brings God to humanity. He's the bridge between God and men. And therefore, that's what we would say is the first part of his job, as Moses tells us here to maintain the presence of God, to keep the lights on in God's tabernacle. So the lit menorah symbolizes the light of God resident in the tabernacle, shining on the 12 loaves that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The second thing that priests do is to serve God. The priest's activity is primarily directed God word. And of course, that runs like a refrain through the first verses of chapter 28, verse 1, that he may minister to me as priest. Verse 3, that he may minister to me as priest. Verse 4, that he may minister to me as priest. And then again in verse 41, that they may minister to me as priests. If the chapter says it four times, it's important. And of course, especially when it says it three times in four verses, it's important. The task of a priest is not primarily to do things for human beings. The task of a priest is primarily to do things for God. Now, of course, we hear that and we say, God doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient all by himself. Why would he need a team of priests to serve him? The answer is, he has an earthly home right in the middle of his people, and therefore he has earthly human servants who take care of that home and represent Israel in his presence. In other words, like we saw with the furniture in the tabernacle, the items of furniture are there primarily for our benefit. And the priestly ministry of these priests, even though it is directed towards God, is primarily for our benefit. What is that priestly service? Well, the bulk of the chapter is taken up with describing two different sets of stones. If you read carefully, you see that there are two onyx stones, two big black onyx stones that are mounted on the priest's shoulders. Each of those stones has the name of six tribes of Israel. And then there are another 12 stones that are mounted on the priest's chest. Each of those stones has one name Of a tribe of Israel. So the high priest is carrying on his person two different, in two different places, the name of each of the 12 tribes. Right? Again, it's the labeled drawing. Symbolism is incredibly obvious. The priest comes into the presence of God and he is bringing this reminder, this memorial as it's translated, but reminder might be a better translation this reminder on his body that God looks at him and says, oh yeah, Ephraim, Manasseh, oh yeah, Judah, Levi, oh yeah, Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, I remember them now. God's memory, as it were, is triggered by the sight of the priest doing his priestly work as he carries on his body the names of the twelve tribes. It's a pretty 
amazing piece of symbolism when you think about it. The main task, well, the main task of the priest is to maintain the light of God's presence. How does he do that? He does that by representing Israel in God's presence. And that's why he wears the label that says Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Levi, Judah, and so on, right across his chest and on each shoulder. God can't forget, but to show his love, to show how dedicated he is to remembering, he created this entire institutional structure that, as we said, employed one-twelfth of Israel, one whole tribe, built around reminding himself of his people's existence. Israel as a whole cannot come physically into the presence of God. We talked about that. The tabernacle is way too small. 10 by 30 cubits. Something like that. What is that? 10 by 45, 15 by 45 feet. That's small. Israel is not going to fit in there. But the high priest fits in there wearing these stones that say the names of Israel. What a reminder. The priest walks in carrying Israel's names on his person. The other thing that this does is that there is the judgment of the children of Israel before the Lord. Verse 30 says, Put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim. They shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now what is that about? The Urim and Thummim seem to have been small stones, basically like dice. And they were in this pouch that the high priest wore. And as far as we can tell, you could shake these stones and get a yes or no answer to a particular question. You could get a direct line to God on a key decision that needed to be made. And so these Urim and Thummim were very useful. And David, of course, consults the Lord by Urim and Thummim at various places in the books of Samuel. At one point he asks about, what will happen if I go to Keilah, or Keilah? Will Saul come and get me there? And the Urim says, yes, he will. David is like, well, what if I don't go? Will he still get me? And the answer is no, he won't get you. And so there's these Urim and Thummim are used for making decisions. So what does the second half of the verse mean then? Right, NIV, Common English Bible, guess something like this. Aaron will carry the means to make decisions for the Israelites over his heart when in the Lord's presence at all times. Is that how we're supposed to take verse 30? The priest wears the Urim and the Thummim, and when he goes into God's presence, there he is. He has the Urim and Thummim with him so he can make decisions. I don't think so. That's a little like carrying coals to Newcastle or carrying coal to Gillette. There's no need for it. God doesn't need to see the means of making decisions. Instead, when he sees the Urim and Thummim, he's reminded of what he has judged about Israel, which is what? They are my people. I chose them out of Egypt. I love them. Israel is my son, my firstborn. When the priest comes in before God, he not only reminds God of the names of Israel, he reminds God of his judgment about Israel. What has God judged? That we are his people that we are his treasured possession above all peoples. So when Aaron comes in, he's carrying the names and he represents Israel, reminds God of his judgment about Israel. We are 
God's people. The priest does that, and that, of course, is what Christ does too when he intercedes for us. He doesn't say, Lord, you've given them Urim and Thummim. He says, Lord, they are your people. This one is your child. So then, furthermore, the priest wore yet another label. So he's already got 24 labels on him, or two, na- two sets of 12 names. And then there's one more right on the middle of his forehead that says, Holy to the Lord. So that it was obvious to him and to everyone else, this priest is set apart from common usage for the holy purpose of serving God as priest. He is holy to the Lord. And in fact, the text tells us without this label, he can't do his job. Uh, When, verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, it shall always be on his forehead, that the holy gifts which the children of Israel bring may be accepted before the Lord. The Israelite brings a sacrifice, core part of the priest's job, The priest comes out to help offer the sacrifice and he left the plate off his turban. The plate is missing. The sacrifice is not accepted. That's what the text says. The plate has to be there so that the gifts can be accepted before the Lord. The Lord had regard to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he had no regard. To the priest who doesn't wear the holiness label, To the priest who is not holy, there is no regard. Uh, A profane priest is a contradiction in terms. So with this plate on, what did the priest do? Well, the first thing he did is bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. Aaron's job was to purify those things. In the biblical world, sin can't be dissolved or washed away. Sin has to be carried away, and that's how it's constantly phrased throughout the Old Testament. Aaron's job was to pick up the sin and carry it away, to bear the iniquity. The iniquity is a load that is set on him, and he has to remove it, take it away somewhere. This struck me so hard as a child, I was talking to my brother one day, we were riding in the car, and I said to him, where did you put your gum wrapper? And he said, nowhere. And I thought, man, that's handy. What a great way to get rid of trash. Nowhere. Just, the thing is gone. Any junk you want to get rid of, put it nowhere. No one cares what's in the nowhere. right? You can't just take the sin and put it nowhere. The sin has to go somewhere, just like the gum wrapper has to go somewhere. And the priest's job is to take the sin and put it somewhere where it belongs, which is not on the holy things. He has to remove it far away from the offerings of Israel. That is his job, to purify those things, to remove the sin. So he does that while wearing this plate that says holiness to the Lord. He can exercise his priestly function of taking away sin. It's crazy to think of the priest as this glorified trash truck driver. But in a certain sense, that was a huge part of his job. To take sin and haul it away to where it belongs, to the unclean place outside the camp. 
So Aaron's job is to do that. He had to bear the iniquity, which is no light or easy load. This is a heavy load to take away. And of course, Christ did this above all on the cross. He bore the wrath of God on the iniquity. He carried away our sin. And it killed him. Because that's how heavy that iniquity was. Once he had done that, once he bore the iniquity of the holy things away from them, then those holy things were accepted. Hebrews tells us, holiness without which no man will see the Lord. But Exodus further informs us that not only no man, but no sacrifice and no gift can be accepted, which is not made holy by the holiness of a properly sanctified priest. Right? If you're not holy, you can't see the Lord. But if your gift isn't holy, it will not be accepted. Your sacrifice won't be accepted unless it too is holy. Israel's offerings wouldn't go through without a priest. They would bounce off the ceiling. Like Cain's offering, they would be rejected. Only a priest could get Israel in touch with God. Only a priest could allow Israel to present clean offerings from which the sin had been removed. And the same is true today. I told you how I was at a prayer meeting once. Somebody opened his prayer with, Lord, thank you that we don't need a mediator. And I just about choked. How can you dishonor Christ like that? Right? It's not, we shouldn't read this chapter and say, Ooh, oh man, glad we don't need priests anymore. That is not the point of Exodus 28 or any other part of these instructions for the tabernacle. Don't read this and say, oh, glad all that's over. That was complicated. No, we need a priest. We still need a priest to cleanse and purify us and the things we would offer to God. We have that priest and we need him. He is the one who is holy to the Lord. He is the one who takes away the iniquity of the things we offer to God. And because of him, our gifts too can be accepted. Of course, through himself, through his own offering was accepted. We don't offer the same kind of wrath removing sacrifices, but we still dedicate ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices, our money, our time. We give gifts to the people of God and to the church. Those things too are rendered acceptable through the hallowing work of Christ who takes the sin out of them and leaves the holy part to be a blessing to himself and to his flock. So don't take Jesus for granted. Don't hear this about the priest and say, this is totally irrelevant to me. I don't need a priest. You do need a priest. Thank God you have a priest. A priest who did not select or ordain himself, as Hebrews 5 emphasizes. The same is true here. God says, now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron doesn't step forward, pull out the oil, and anoint himself. Right? Napoleon did that. He takes the crown from the Pope's hands and crowns himself. I'm the emperor. Thank you very much. Aaron did not do that. Aaron was called by God, brought forward, and Moses anoints and makes Aaron into that priest. Priests are brought near by God. We talked about this technical language of coming near 
drawing near, coming into the presence of God, that is what a priest does. Take Aaron, your brother, and bring him near to me to serve me as priest. So what does a priest wear? Well, that's what the bulk of the chapter talks about, aside from the labels of the 12 tribes and the holiness plate. The root holy appears 11 times in this chapter, in 43 verses. Holiness is the most important part of the priestly garments. The priestly garments are not for daily use or for just any purpose. They are holy. They are set apart for the purpose of of serving God. The holiness of priests in general and our great high priest in particular is of the essence of their ministry. A profane priest is a contradiction in terms. And that's why novelists in particular have gotten a lot of mileage out of the concept of the profane priest because anything can follow from a contradiction. But Christ is not a profane priest. Aaron is not a profane priest. They are Holy priests. Priestly, uh, this holiness refers to a set-apart lifestyle. There's extra rules for the priest. He's only allowed to marry, marry a virgin or the widow of another priest. He can't marry uh, a divorced woman. He can't marry a widow from a non-priest. Right? There's some lifestyle things that indicate the holiness of the priest as the one who's set apart. And in the same way, our great high priest indicates his holiness by not being married. Right? He is one of the few unmarried people in Scripture. And that's an important part about him, a lifestyle factor that indicates his holiness. In the same way, holiness also indicates or demands moral purity. Someone who obeys the Ten Commandments, who keeps the whole law of God, our great high priest, is both morally pure and lives that set-apart, holy lifestyle. Priestly robes, additionally, are glorious. And that's what verse 2 says, you shall make holy garments for glory and for beauty. Our culture has mostly forgotten what glory is. We try to catch it in our cinematography at times, but you won't find it in our architecture, rarely in our music, uh, certainly not in our literary art or visual art, but here it is. These clothes were to be glorious. Now say what you will about 21st century fashions. I don't think anybody would call them glorious. That is what these priestly robes were supposed to be. Just like the God they served, the priests were supposed to have glory. The priestly robes were to be beautiful. Not drab, not ugly, not fading into the background. And they match the temple. Blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine twisted linen, the same thing the tabernacle is made of, the priestly robes are made from. The priest matches the divine dwelling place. When it comes to Christ, not only does he match it, he is it. He is the true tabernacle. God dwells in the tabernacle and God dwells with the priest. And finally, the last verse of the chapter tells us, if they don't wear the robes, I'll kill them. When they come to the altar to minister the holy place, they need to wear, especially the special underwear, but really all of the robes, that they do not incur iniquity and die. 
To approach God without being clothed in these priestly robes is to bear your guilt and die. You can't be priest without the right clothing because the Levitical priests were priests in a derivative way. The power of their priesthood was extrinsic. It came from the clothing in a certain sense. But our great high priest has, is priest by an intrinsic power, the power of an indestructible life. So as we read this chapter, we should love and admire our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We should see him in this description of the Aaronic priesthood. And we should see how superior his priesthood is to this one. You need a priest in Christ. You have one. He keeps God's presence with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the great high priest who maintains your presence on earth with your people. Lord, strengthen us to love, to admire, to worship your Son as our priest, and to go to him for cleansing. We thank you that he bore our iniquity. Father, we bless you, we praise you, we worship you, we glorify you for the priestly ministry of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.